The lost cause of the Confederacy. What was that cause? And was it really lost? We'll ask our guest, Gary Gallagher, these and other questions when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that'll encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers the night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next auction. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be on the air, behind the mic? Are you an expert in your field or just passionate about a particular topic? Then World Talk Radio has a place for you. You can host your own professional show and share your message with the world. World Talk Radio is producing a new fall lineup and is interested in hearing your show ideas. Let us help you start your own radio show today from anywhere in the world. Call right now to find out how you can become a host. It's easier than you think. Call 858-836-0164. Or email us at newshows at worldtalkradio.com. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit wellnow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. Wellnow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to wellnow.ca today. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guest today is Gary Gallagher, author or editor of more than 30 books about the Civil War. Gary, when we left off uh, our first section there, we were talking about the uh, very important question of what the Confederacy was fighting for, and in particular, the question of emancipation in the Confederacy, whether that was seriously considered and, and, and what that says about the Confederate cause. Let me ask you a related question. I've heard you address this in other fora. Some people... Uh, I won't say scholarship. Some people today argue that the Confederates did, in fact, use a large number of African-American soldiers in the war. Where does that idea come from? Well, I think that idea comes from a a kind of neo-lost cause effort retrospectively to get uh, right on the issue of race, to pretend 
that uh, thousands of black people actually picked up muskets and fought in Confederate armies, which is a hallucination. I mean, it absolutely did not happen. There were, of course, thousands of black men with Confederate armies, but there were slaves. Now, they're pretty much invisible. You don't see them in the movie Gettysburg. You don't see them even in, in much of the literature. They're there. They're doing all kinds of non-combatant things. Uh, it became more of an official policy late in the war when Lee and Jefferson Davis tried to get as many white men into the rank shouldering muskets and to get slaves to do as much of the non-combatant work as possible with the army. So there are black men with the armies, but are they serving in Confederate armies, which is the way it's often put? Uh, I'd say absolutely not. They're not volunteering to do it. They're not in there because they're devoted to the cause. They're they're enslaved men who are, this is what they're told to do, just as some were uh, keeping the agricultural economy going, some were building earthworks, some were serving in non-combatant capacities with the armies. And we're talking about such huge numbers of men overall that I have no doubt that at some point during the war, in a handful of instances, who knows how many, some black man with the Confederate Army probably fired a musket at some Union soldier. I'm not saying that that absolutely never happened, but I'm saying that it would have been a statistically insignificant number of times when it happened and that you don't have these thousands. I've seen a number as high as 100,000 black men, quote, serving, unquote, with Confederate armies. If that were the case, somebody should have told Robert E. Lee because he would have been happy to know that he had an extra 100,000 men around. He certainly never got that email. No. <clears throat> McClellan thought he had the extra 100,000. <laughs> That's but, right. Uh, but he didn't think they were black. No, he didn't, and, and he wouldn't have uh, approved. <laughs> he would that, not. Well, you've tripled my highest estimate. 30,000 was the highest number I last heard floating around. For I've seen 100,000. I went to a, a roundtable meeting in uh, Pasadena, California, a few years ago when I was at the Huntington Library for a year, and I, in that presentation the number was 50,000, which I just thought, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just really crazy. So there's an inflation going on. There with is. This number. There when is. it gets to a million, we'll, uh, then we'll, we'll know. We'll know. Then well, you really have to wonder why the Confederacy lost. At that point, absolutely. <laughs> now, if when we're talking about using black soldiers, black men as soldiers in the Confederacy, you know, General Claiborne proposes this in 1864 and is shouted down, basically. The, the debate, you say the debate can be read either way uh, as, as suggesting the Confederacy is willing to put aside racial hierarchy in favor of independence. But not really put it aside. I mean, it would be problematical, but they're not. They're talking about... There are three and a half million slaves in the Confederacy, and they're never talking about more than a few thousand men who would go into the army. So it's Lee argued that anyone who went in the army and served well should be freed, and his family should be freed, and they should be allowed to live wherever they lived. The Confederate Congress wasn't even go, uh, willing to go along with that, as you know. They said put them in the army, but there was no promise of freedom, either for the soldiers or for their families. And, and, of course, that doesn't give much incentive. No, well, as Lee said, why, why would anybody do that if there's no incentive? Which echoes, Lincoln said exactly the same thing in reference to black soldiers, that they, they operate in self-interest like all people. Just like we, all people, that's right. So so he uses that in reference to uh, whether he should retract the Emancipation Proclamation in 1864, and right. the, the promise being made must be kept. Now, this... 
I mentioned in the, the break there the, the lost cause, and you brought that up in, in reference to the, the black Confederate soldiers. You've written about the lost cause. What, what does that phrase mean to you? That phrase to me means that the lost cause interpretation of the war is a group of ideas, not an official group of ideas. There's not a handbook that they passed around that said these are the three things that we're going to argue as lost cause uh, controversialists controversialist but they but there's a body of ideas i think that falls within what i would call the lost cause interpretation of the war and it's an effort on the part of former confederates who are coming out of a war in which they were absolutely defeated they're, it's not a, a, a an equivocal defeat they're absolutely defeated their whole social structure is turned on its head uh, much of their economic infrastructure is in ruins. They've lost a quarter of their military-age white men killed and, and nearly another quarter maimed. So it's a horrible defeat. How are they going to make sense of that? How are they going to walk away from that with their honor intact, hold their heads high, look their children and, and their wives and family members in the face? And I think the way they did it was, first of all, to argue that the war wasn't about slavery. They were smart enough to know they were on the wrong side of Western history uh, in, in that regard. So they said it was not about slavery. Slavery was incidental. It was really about constitutional rights and so forth. Uh, they would said explicitly it was about slavery on the eve of the war, but they changed their tune on that, so it's not about slavery. So they didn't focus on the political side of the war, which was messy. They played their best card. Their best card was Robert E. Lee. He's their most attractive figure. He won battles against the odds. You could portray him as a brilliant and gallant officer leading a wonderful army that against hopeless odds, which is critical to the lost cause interpretation, the North had too much of everything for the Confederacy ever to have won. So what's admirable is that these Confederates struggled so long and so hard against hopeless odds, and so their honor is intact. They fought the good fight even though they lost a war that, of course, they would lose because the North had so much of everything and it was a war waged for constitutional principle. If you spin it that way, then there's not so much shame in losing the war. There you have uh, a version of the war that shows you fighting the good fight, fighting very hard, and in the end losing to these limitless northern numbers orchestrated by, in an effort orchestrated by Grant, who's not a great general, but just a guy who understands on some level that he can just pile in the men and eventually he'll win. No, that's a remarkable interpretation, and even more remarkable is the, the success it enjoyed. I think they succeeded beyond their imaginings. They, the principal lost cause architects, I think, hoped to persuade white Southerners and maybe some uh, foreign observers, those in England and elsewhere who were interested in the war, but in the end, their interpretation became the, the sort of national interpretation in some ways. Not in all ways. They certainly didn't persuade all Northerners. I think the degree to which Northerners bought into this has been exaggerated, and especially the degree to which reconciliation carried the field in the late 19th century. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you that. David Blight argues this, uh -huh. that, that uh, the national reconciliation that takes place in the late 19th century, early 20th century, is based on an acceptance of the South's interpretation of the war and an abandonment to the political understanding of the war and especially the commitment to the freedmen right right black people out of the story and once you do that the white soldiers north and south can come together and agree that they were all brave americans together that in a nutshell is the reconciliationist argument let's talk about 
American virtues. And there's certainly something to that. If you read the speeches that Woodrow Wilson gave at Gettysburg in 19, uh, on the 50th anniversary of the battle and that FDR gave on the 75th, they do talk about how gallant the men on both sides were, how it shows American virtues and so forth. And neither one of them mentioned emancipation. Neither one of them mentioned African Americans. So David is cert- David Blight is certainly on to something there. But I think it can be exaggerated very easily. I think there's a great deal of residual bitterness, deep-seated bitterness on both sides, uh, not wanting to reconcile. And I also think there were many in the North, especially in the Grand Army of the Republic, the, the big uh, veterans organization, that didn't turn their backs on their black comrades from the war. Uh, there was a recent book uh, that came out on that and another one on the way out that argues that the many in the GAR were quite uh, outspoken in their insistence that black veterans, there was a real comradeship across racial lines of Union veterans. But it didn't, it certainly doesn't carry the day when the South goes uh, over to, to wholesale legal segregation in the 1890s. Right. There's no, no resistance no. in the North. That's absolutely right. I think, well, uh, that's because I think first to last it is a war for union. For the, for the mass of white northerners, uh, we often say that it starts as a war for union and then becomes a war for union and freedom. And in a sense, of, in terms of outcome, that is true. It becomes a war that both saves the union and liberates uh, four million enslaved African Americans, three and a half million in the Confederacy, a half a million in the states that stayed in the union. Yes, that happens, but in the minds of most white northerners who waged the war did it become a war for union and freedom with those as twin goals i don't think so i think first to last it was a war for union and emancipation was one of the tools that the north used to defeat the confederacy emancipation hurt the confederacy that's how lincoln uh, couched it in the emancipation process a war aim it's a war measure excuse me a war measure this will hurt the rebels and so let's use it what could hurt them more than taking their slaves away from them? Let's bring this controversy up to the present day, this idea of, of what the war was about. Was it a, a grand struggle of manly virtues, brave soldiers north and south, uh, or was it an underlying political conflict about union and slavery? There's a current controversy taking place on the, in the battlefield parks in the National Park Service about how battlefields should be interpreted. Yes, yes, there is. Uh, well, and as you know, the, the idea is over the last hundred years, the battlefields have been interpreted strictly as military sites. Right. The move now is to add some political context to that. Right. How right. do you view that? Well, I've, I've been, there's been a partnership between the Organization of American Historians, which is, a, as you know, a professional organization of, of scholars who write history, and the National Park Service to have groups of historians go to the parks and and work with the historians in the parks and talk about how uh, these sites should be interpreted. I've participated in three of those at Antietam and uh, the Richmond Battlefields and at Kennesaw. I'm very strongly on the side. I mean, I I write about military history. I'm very interested in military history. Unlike most academics, I think military history is very important. But you have to place these battles within their broader context or they just don't mean anything. It, it's wonderful to go to Antietam and walk through the sunken road and see what happened to George Burgwin Anderson's North Carolina Brigade there or to go over in the West Woods and see where the 15th Massachusetts Infantry was butchered during Sedgwick's assault 
But if you come away from Antietam knowing those things and not knowing the diplomatic and political and emancipation-related uh, ramifications of that battle, then you haven't had a successful visit to Antietam. It's, it's, I mean, they're wonderful sites. You can't understand these battles without going to the sites. I've was, been very active in, or what? I'm not so much anymore, but I used to be very active in battlefield preservation. I think we need to save these sites uh, because you can't understand the battles without going to them. But they're also invaluable in other ways because they let us make a connection to the past where you can place the battles within a broader context and really bring a deeper understanding of why these places are important now. I don't think any of our listeners would, would disagree with the need both to save the battlefields and the importance of visiting them. I, there are some people in, in this controversy, and I'll play devil's advocate, uh, who are suggesting, well, this is a just a, a modern or uh, postmodern uh, spin. We're, well, they'd we're say to... politically correct. This is just politically correct. I didn't want correct. to use the phrase. I was trying to dodge it yeah. there. Well, don't dodge it. Me... Let's just use it because that's what's usually used. That's what you used. I, I would regard it as meaningless, but go ahead. Well, they, they say, listen, these are battles. These are places that were established to study the battles. They were established, the early ones, so that United States Army officers could go on staff rides and learn tactical lessons and look at tactical and strategic problems. And you're just trying to make these places where you can bombard people with things that are important to us now. You, you dump race in it and gender and class. That's what you want to do here, and people will forget they were battles. Well, that... Uh, I don't go along with that at all. I don't think that an interpreter should be leading a walk along the uh, high water mark at Gettysburg to use the old interpretation, the Confederate high water mark. Uh, that's an example of lost cause influence right there. Uh, why not the Union high water mark, the Union one? But at any rate, I don't think in the middle of that walk you should stop and say, now let's talk about uh, women and children behind the lines. I'm not saying that at all. I just think that at some place uh, at these sites, preferably in revamped museums, visitors should get to see how this place fits into the broader... Why? I mean, if you go to... And I'll stop in just a minute, but if you no, go no, to no. Chancellorsville, it isn't enough to know that Lee did brilliant, uh, did brilliantly as a tactician there or that, that Hooker suffered a collapse of moral courage. Why, why is Chancellorsville so important? You have to understand that at that stage of the war, there were raging controversies behind the lines in the North about emancipation, about conscription, which had just been passed, that, that Copperheads, the anti-war Democrats, were at their highest point of the war, that this battle mattered because it hurt Lincoln and his administration in many ways, and it helped Confederate morale behind the lines in many ways. There's a lot going on in the spring of 1863 uh, at the time that Chancellorsville takes place. It's not just a battle that happens because the two armies blunder into one another, and all we need to know is that Hooker retreated. We need to know the what the ramifications of that retreat were and how this battle resonated behind the lines. I, I just think if we don't know that, we're missing a huge part of the story. Now, there will be some people who are made uncomfortable by it, and, and you're right, many people who don't like this do use the phrase political correctness. Which, which generally when I hear that, I assume there's, there's a complete poverty of argument. Uh, there is, because be it basically doesn't mean anything. It means everything now. People throw it out all the time. I mean, it used to have a more... Uh, but anyway, let's go ahead. Well, it, it strikes me that, that, that there are some people for whom 
when you begin to introduce the political ramifications of battles, uh, and especially this is going to lead to the political ramifications of the war, including race and class and other issues, now you're getting back to the things that the lost causers didn't want to talk about in the first place. That's true. And people's and it, eyes glaze over. They do. And it becomes a little less fun to put on a Confederate reenactor uniform. That's right. If we you have to think that. about it. That's right. Uh, so, so I think there are, there's a lot of resistance to this. There is a lot of resistance. Well, I hear the music. Which I do, too. I hear the music. <laughs> we'll take a short break. We'll be right back with Gary Gallagher on Civil War Talk Radio.